Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome into another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode is another entry in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Noah Wilson, a PhD candidate in the Composition and Cultural Rhetoric program at Syracuse University. And it wasn't until I was defending my exam article and one of my um, committee members, Asia Martinez, was like, I think it's so cool that like you spent all this time researching building communities and now you see Facebook claiming it can do the same thing. That must have been really weird for you. And I completely get why you're focusing on Facebook. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like this weird thing where you have these things you do that you don't see as connected, but it doesn't mean your mind isn't connecting them. Are they vetting it? Uh, I think that's something I talk about in all of my classes is how do you vet the information you get? And a lot of the shortcuts we use, which it might be like, oh, I'll Google it. And if I see it on three different sites, it's probably true. Well, that doesn't really hold up. You'll hear more from Noah in a bit. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, and the financial implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for those working in higher education are beginning to be revealed. Of course, contingent faculty and non-tenure track jobs are being hit the hardest. According to the Miami student, Miami University, Ohio will not renew the contracts of a number of faculty members next year, as the university is expected to lose tens of millions of dollars due to the novel coronavirus, and that chairs should plan for cuts to 50% of all visiting assistant professor positions within their department. This week, the University of Arizona announced furlough plans for employees. The university is implementing a tiered system based on salary that allows the furloughs to be taken over time in an attempt to, according to the Daily Wildcat, make up for an estimated $66 million loss for this fiscal year. These are just two examples of the responses by universities to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are millions of stories to be told, so reach out to us if you would like to share your story about your response or your institution's response to the pandemic. I first met Noah Wilson at the GRN at Computers and Writing Conference in 2019 at Michigan State University. Throughout our time together that day, I identified Noah as a brilliant scholar and a generous person. Noah Wilson is a PhD candidate in Syracuse University's Composition and Cultural Rhetoric program, where he serves as a teaching assistant. Noah's teaching focuses on composition and rhetoric, digital humanities, and surveillance, in addition to popular culture and anti-racist pedagogy. His teaching often incorporates popular culture and intertextuality. His research focuses on the intersections between rhetorical theory and technology, notably the connections between ethos and the algorithmic technologies that power social media platforms. His dissertation project, 
algorithmic dwelling, the consequences of ethos on social media platforms, examines how a critical post-human conception of ethos can help us to understand how technology shape our information processing and community formation. In his free time, Noah enjoys spending time with his family, visiting local coffee shops, and watching horror films. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Noah Wilson. Yeah, what what city were you born in in New York? Uh, I was born in Rochester, New York, actually, wow. inner city right near uh, the Rochester International Airport. I grew up in the 19th Ward. Okay, you were there pretty much throughout your childhood? Yeah, I mean, we moved around a bit. Uh, my dad used to work for the University of Rochester as a boiler room operator. Uh, when I was very young, I would say I was under 10. I don't remember the exact year, to be honest, because it was for most of my life. He's been disabled. He got hurt. Uh, so we went from like a blue collar, like middle class thing to like living on like food stamps and impoverished. Uh, and so like, yeah, you know, I didn't, that's something else in this program. I never really thought about like how disability has shaped my family structures and like the paths we've had to take. Uh, and then I entered CCR and I took a class on like disability uh, writing and I was like, oh yeah, actually this is very foundational to like the identity and stuff like that. So it's just weird how those things happen. But yeah, inner city Rochester uh, and lived in different parts of the city, but still within it. I've never been to Rochester. How, how big is that city? Uh, It's bigger than Syracuse. It's going to be, I think technically it's a little bit smaller than Buffalo um what's interesting about it is it has like i feel like when i'm in syracuse new york there's a couple pockets you can go to places with rochester there's like many distinct like areas you can go to and they feel very different um so you have like this area near the university of rochester that's been built up by the university they bought property and such um but then you have another spot it's like park ave that it, you'll have people from like nazareth and st john fisher which are uh, smaller liberal arts colleges nearby so it's very like weird how the communities fit together in this hodgepodge way but uh you can find something there i mean i guess i'm a little bit biased because i'm from rochester but yeah <laughs> sure so your dad's working in the boiler room at the university of rochester what about your mom uh, my mom, she, she was a stay at home mom. Um, yeah. and she also has like arthritis really bad. So actually I have, I have two disabled parents. Uh, they both, you know, we faced a lot of weird stuff. Uh, we were a family of six, had to move around a few times. I eventually wound up in Hilton, New York, which is where my mom is from. Uh, her dad actually grew up in Rochester, like way back. Uh, and then they moved out to Hilton. He was in World War II and became a surveyor. Uh, and then he, he out in Hilton. Like he was working on the um, freeway system, not the freeway, the throughway system up there. And you know, he I guess he eventually built a house or whatever. So my mom's from like a small like suburban town, and my dad's from the inner city. But uh, yeah, so that's that's my parents right there. And then I have three sisters who we're all still like Rochester located. I think I've moved around the most actually. But yeah. Well, one of the big moves that you made, I think, is from Rochester to go to the College of Brockport. Yeah, yeah, at least as far as like life changes, yeah. That was that was a big one. And it's not far. It was only like a half hour, but I wanted to be somewhere where I can come home and help when needed. Um, but be far enough away where I could kinda like do that college thing. Yeah, I understand that a hundred percent. I think I did something similar. I went about an hour and a half away. Uh, yeah. close enough if I needed to be home I could very quickly, but maybe 
a different news station or news outlet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it changed the zip code just slightly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I moved to Potsdam, New York, which is like three and a half hours away from Rochester. But I would come back once a month to have like dinner with my grandfather because like yeah. I was close to him. And so, again, I was like driving three and a half hours once a month. But I, I again, I was able to do that. So I felt very fortunate that I was able to stay within the state to to be there for my family for uh, sure. as they needed me. Now, when I was looking over your CV, no, I noticed that your bachelor of you have a bachelor of science in I English, know, I know, in, <laughs> no, in English literature and adolescent inclusive education. The yeah. first part I know about that. The second part, adolescent inclusive education, I know less about. Could you fill us in on what that means? Yeah, so I don't even I'd have to check and see what Brockport's doing these days, but the way they did their education program, there was a movement to have like inclusive education. Uh, and so what it means is instead of pulling students out for special ed and only having them in like a pullout class, the idea was if someone had a learning disability that was minor or moderate, you would keep them in the classroom, but you would have teachers who were trained. So I would have been I would have been certified as a seven through twelve and or yes, um, middle school and high school certified for English, but then middle school and high school certified for special education. And the idea was if you had these really specialized teachers, yes, they would work with an aide, but then you could have an environment where you're arranging your classroom, you're arranging lessons in a way where it allows people with different ability levels to get what they need without having to be pulled out. So it kind of helps to try to alleviate some of that stigma. Common Core, I think, kind of changed things a bit from when like I went there, so I don't even know what they're doing now, but that's what the whole philosophy behind that was, was to try to give people what they needed in the classroom. So like when they started doing individualized education plans, you know, I would be certified to work with a team to do those things was the idea. What's it like to get an undergraduate degree at the College of Brockport? What was your undergrad experience like? What kind of things were you into and how did you kind of move and decide that you wanted to keep going and get your master's degree there? Yeah, so I started out uh, when I was going to college. I had no idea how to even apply. Um, I th- my mom had gone, I think, a semester at Monroe Community College, which is in Rochester, but she never finished. So, like, both of my parents didn't really know much about college. I never got to visit a campus. I didn't even thought to do that. So when people were taking, like, SATs and stuff, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't have the money to pay for these tests. So I went to a community college to start out, and I changed majors five times. Uh, I started in... I was going to do computer networking. I had done that in high school. And I was like, oh, I'll do this. This is definitely what I want to do. And then I thought about doing that every day. And I'm like, nah, I think I want to teach technology. I was like, yeah, I'll teach tech. And then I learned about like lathes and like doing like shop class. And then I found out I wasn't very good at that. And I was like, well, I don't really have that skill. So I was like thinking like I always liked English. I know I want to be a teacher. Uh, and so eventually I, I changed into um, I want to be an English teacher. And that's when I identified Brockport because I have known some people who had transferred. They had like a two plus two program with different campuses. But I noticed that their education program was like really good or at least had a good reputation. So I decided to transfer there. That changed a lot because I went from being a part time commuting student who was working full time to being an on campus student who was working full time, but was like living on campus and could kind of like feel my own way out. So like most of my experience was like trying to acquire different jobs. So I worked in the dish room. I worked in three different computer labs. Uh, One was for the art department and it was awesome. Like I got to work with uh, art professors and like converting their slides, helping students with their video projects. I worked in a foreign language lab running their computer lab system. 
we didn't get as much traffic, but that was kind of cool too. So for me, like I kind of, I mean, I always had like a thing for like reading and movies and video games. So that certainly persisted and I found friends with that, but I learned a lot like by working different jobs. Uh, and then I became an RA and that kind of changed like career paths for me a little bit because I really liked working with college students and I didn't realize what an RA was until like the year before I applied for it. And they were like, Hey, like you seem to be pretty good at interacting with people. Like maybe you should be an RA and like help lead a floor. And that kind of changed like that, that that's basically why I did student affairs for seven years. Cause I really enjoyed working with college students and I felt like I could help them. Uh, so Brockport like was, you know, it gave me a path with like literature. Like I, I, I knew I wanted to study English, but then eventually it got me into like rec comp. Like I didn't know what rec comp was until my master's when I was talking to my thesis advisor and she was very supportive, but uh, someone else on my committee is like, you know, a lot of the stuff you're talking about, there's like a field, if you're thinking of going for a PhD and we think you should, you might want to look at like rec comp to see what they have to offer. Uh, and so I kind of sat on that for, I don't know, like three years after my master's, I, I like worked in student affairs while I was working on my master's. And I was like, yeah, I think this is definitely something I want to do. So I guess Brockport for me was a lot of firsts. It was like my first time living completely on my own. So like in the summers, I stayed there to work for the tech department. So yeah, I made like a lot of good friendships there that I, I've still maintained. I don't know if that kind of answers what you're you're looking for with that one or um, if there's other things I can answer that I did. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think is super interesting about your your path to rhetoric is that it's similar to mine and similar to a lot of folks that I talk to that go to smaller universities and get English literature degrees and then perhaps get out in the field or get out in higher education and they discover rhetoric, right? They yeah, yeah. This I entire had, field. I had no idea what it was. Like, it was so weird that, like, the things I was trying to do in literature, like, they were, like, my program was big about, like, new historicism was something that was coming out, and it's, like, about thinking of the the historical context and how it influences the writer, but there wasn't really a lot of talk about the writer's intention. That was seen as, like, an old way to look at things, and it was all about close reading, and I really liked that, but then, like, I read Derrida, and I'm like, I don't, I don't get this, like, how this fits in here, and I wish I kept reading it, because I probably would have found rhetoric sooner, because, like, Rhetoricians love Derrida, I guess. Or... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it's, just, it's weird not knowing that, like, you're you're interested in something that's like, it's like it's right next door, and you're you're just you just don't quite open that door to see it. And sometimes it takes someone to just like to you. So like in Potsdam, I really learned a lot about rhetoric because you know I had that committee member who told me to look into it, and so I went to Potsdam. In the SUNY system, when you're a state employee, you get the union's like really, really good. And so you could take a class tuition free as long as it's, it's during the late ad period. So like students are already in it. And then if there's extra space, you could take it tuition free and you just pay the extra fees. And so I took a class on semiotics with uh, Donald McNutt and uh, SUNY Potsdam. And that completely changed. I, that was like my full introduction to rhetoric. And now it's just in semiotics, but like he was very much more like pointing me to different things and he helped me figure out a school. And he's like, you, you should look into Syracuse's program. He's like, the things you're talking about you want to do and you kind of want to stay local. It's a really good program. It's like, you should go for this. And I was so unconfident imposter syndrome on the max because like I knew nothing about rhetoric and I was trying to like read on my own without any like guidance. I was like, I don't even know what I should be reading. Like I can read a couple of collections, but I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, I kind of sat on it for a couple of years and then I finally applied and I'm glad I did. Cause like I learned a lot in my first year. <laughs> so I think I caught up, but yeah, I entered with like no knowledge. I, I felt like I didn't know anything that anyone else coming in knew. And that was really weird because I was like, well, I have a lit background. 
I don't know what I'm supposed to have read. I've read some things, but yeah, uh, it's just weird. It's just weird that this field exists that you don't know about until someone kind of directs you to it. So you're at Syracuse uh, working in rhetoric and composition, and you are already a PhD candidate, and you have your dissertation committee formed. Dr. Krista Kennedy is your chair, Colin Brook, and Asia Martinez. Your dissertation title is so great, so I'm going to read it. Algorithmic Dwelling, the Consequences of Ethos on Social Media Platforms. What is algorithmic (laughs) dwelling? That's a good question. I'll be able to tell you maybe in a year. No. <laughs> uh, so what I – and again, like I, I, I knew of like ethos is just like it's character. Uh, so I took a class with Lois Agnew here in, in Ancient Rhetoric. It's one of the core classes. And I got really interested in the way people were talking about ethos in ways that it wasn't just about character. Uh, so I'm kind of looking at something that like Nedra Reynolds has talked about in her article, uh, Ethos as Location, but then also looking at this one specific collection that really kind of blew this all open for me was Hyde's edited collection, The Ethos of Rhetoric, and he offers this definition of ethos as a creation of dwelling spaces where people know together on a matter of concern. And, uh, and so for me, it's like that creation of a dwelling space is where that algorithmic dwelling comes from. And it's like, okay, so we're online what is making these dwelling spaces for us? And like algorithms are involved with that. And so I, that's when I kind of got interested in looking at social media platforms in a way it's shaping how we connect with people. So I kind of see ethos as it's a process. Uh, I kind of look at it as like a post-human process that, that involves technology, but then also like other people. But it's also concerned with like how we come to know things with each other, how we like make decisions. Uh, and so like, there's, I, think, I guess that's the simplest way I could put it right now. I mean, I don't know if you have like a follow-up question with that. I can answer like a specific section because, um, yeah, the theory chapter has been very interesting to write because there's just a lot of threads I'm trying to put together. What are some of the digital spaces that you're looking at for this dissertation project? Yeah, so I'm looking at – so the article I wrote is kind of like the beginning of this. So I do have a chapter on Facebook. Um, but my primary case study is actually YouTube, and I'm looking at the way uh, okay. that videos circulate on there and how the algorithm is making choices for people on what to connect them to. So I, I do end up looking at some of those circulating conspiracy theory type stuff that gets tangled up in like Joe Rogan. Um, there is a, a study from Data and Society that's about the Alternative Influence Network. Uh, and what I've found in some of my preliminary, so what I did was I kind of looked at, you know, what are the top podcasts? Joe Rogan was one. And I kind of looked at like, what are the things that this algorithm is recommending? So I actually, um, let me step back a second. So I took a class uh, with Jenny Strummer Galley in the iSchool here. It's like, you know, they, they study basically information science and big data. And so I learned a couple of methods and I, I found out about the um, the digital methods like collaborative that richard rogers runs and they have a website so if you look up like um digital methods wiki uh richard roger you'll find like this wiki where he has students developing new tools to study like platforms but they'll give you like a walkthrough of how the tool works a sample project that used it and so it kind of helps you get started so i'm actually looking at what outputs the youtube that you know on the sidebar like all those recommended videos yeah yeah i'm looking at that algorithm specifically and so what I'm doing is I'm going right through the application or the API and I'm just querying certain videos that I've selected and it's giving me a list of what it would recommend. Now, personalization settings will change that for individual users, but I'm kind of interested in like, 
what is the algorithm doing? What are decision? What associations is it making? What is it connecting together? And so, yeah, someone's personalization settings will weigh into that. But I'm also curious, of, like, how is the algorithm making its decisions, and like, what implications might that be for users and what they're exposed to or what they're connected to? Uh, and so, my study is looking at a list of videos that I determined. I followed them for 30 days and just tracked all the videos up to a certain point that it was recommending. And then just try to see if there's patterns of videos that are being recommended across these streams. So it's kind of like a path is having users follow. And when I finished my first 30 days of doing it, YouTube had that big fiasco, I think like a year ago. So this was in last summer. They had mm -hmm. to change their algorithm really quickly because they got a lot of backlash about the rise of like flat earthers and stuff like that. And they made all this you know, hoopla about like, all right, we're going to change the algorithm. We'll fix it. Well, I had just finished collecting my data when they announced that. So I ended up doing a second 30 day set. And so I'm currently working on sifting through all that and see what actually changed in the outputs based on those changes. So I got kind of lucky that it fell right at the exact moment. I mean, we're talking like within a week, YouTube's like, we're changing the algorithm drastically. And then I did a, a second set to kind of observe that. You have algorithmic dwelling ethos as deformance on online spaces coming out in rhetoric review. Um, I, I assume that that's just a restructured part of this larger uh, project. Yeah. Excellent. That's not the only thing you have coming up. You also have uh, balancing the halo, data surveillance and algorithmic opacity. Opacity? Yeah, opacity. I better try that again. <laughs> Balancing the halo, data surveillance and algorithmic opacity and smart hearing aids. And that's with Krista Kennedy and Charlotte Scheider. Uh, and that's going to be in Rhetoric of Health and Medicine coming up soon. What, what's that project about? Uh, so when I took a course with Krista, uh, and this is kind of how I fell into like surveillance for rhetorics. I was, we were looking at writing and technology was a course that it was called. And, and Krista leaves it open for your final project to be pretty broad and it could be multimodal. And she gives a lot of space to do this. So I was actually looking at like hacking culture a little bit. And then I started looking at the way people thwart surveillance. So that reading that for that project, uh, Krista and I started working together because she had been doing some work with medical wearables, uh, specifically the Halo hearing aids. So I had worked with her some before. We were kind of looking at some archival materials. And then I started doing a, a lit review of like surveillance studies to try to find a way to bring that into rhetoric, uh, or at least to look at ethos in a different way. And, and that is something where it's like, I'm thinking of like, is surveillance doing something with ethos? Is it about tracking people's ethos? Uh, and so from there, we started working on this project with Starkey. It's a wearable hearing aid. Uh, it uses a lot of algorithms, but also like geolocation data to uh, essentially automatically adjust levels depending on where you're at. Um, so for a deaf user or someone who uses it, they wouldn't have to like open up their app and like select a setting for, say, like a coffee shop because it's a little bit louder and you want to drown out background noise and then turn around and have to change it in like your office. What this does is it can tell where you are. It tracks your movements and it remembers that like, OK, in this specific or this general coordinates, this is the setting they had. And so you can actually program that memory in there. When we were kind of looking at the surveillance like research and the ways some of this data tracking is happening, we realized that like, well, where does that data go? And like, who has right. access to that? And when it's tied to someone's body and their movement and like, uh, who has access to that and what rights do people have? And so we started looking into 
um, that device is because uh, Krista uses that device. Uh, so we kind of looked at like the promotion materials. We started looking at the data policies and we just kept finding more and more stuff that was interesting that was really, well, opaque. Like there is no discussion with uh, users about data use and like where it goes. It's just seen as like a given like, well, yeah, of course we have to collect data if we want the device to work. And so we started thinking about with looking at like, you know, surveillance rhetorics and looking at um, the rhetorics of data that there are some issues with that and there are some implications that maybe aren't being thought of because a lot of times companies will make an algorithm and they'll collect data and they, you know, they fine tune it, but then they're like repurposing that or selling parts of it and like trading it because they own the data. So a lot of it's like, well, how do we talk about what rights people had to data today? And so that's what that chapter in um, Sparby's collection was, or Raymond and Sparby's collection was about was just looking at like, well, how, you know, what are some of the logics that are built into this? What could be some of the dangers? That Rhetorics of Health and Medicine article is is trying to put forth a little more about policy um, and, like, you know, how can we advise in that and, like, what it look like. Charlotte is very familiar with, like, European law when it comes to a lot of these things. So the UK actually has a more robust um, data policies in the United States does. So, right. like, we're kind of trying to borrow some stuff from that to be, like, instead of making it, like, a yes from default, is there a way to protect people? And so that's what that kind of article is tossing through a little bit. I love that, and I can't wait to take a look at that when it comes out. Our research kind of intersects in that way, thinking about privacy and surveillance and private and policy making and things like that. So I will tell you that that is something I am super looking forward to. My name is Trevor Meyer, and I'm an assistant professor in language literature and writing at Northwest Missouri State University. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this style? Then the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast's core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form to the website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet, follow the podcast on Facebook, or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. This project is fascinating. It really is. But I wonder, how does this dissertation project impact your pedagogy? Oh, man. 
All right, so that's another thing. Like we we talked about a little bit earlier, how like, there's these unseen these these unseen ways that things we look at or have looked in the past influence us. Right. It really changes the way I teach a lot of things. So I I my dissertation, even though it is looking at YouTube, it's kind of like a two parter. And like the first part is a lot of rhetorical theory and looking at the ways we connect with others, the way we know with others, and like how we establish credibility with someone, what that actually looks like in like a post human sense. And I found that specifically thinking of the class I'm teaching now, I'm doing a um, so our research writing class, you have different themes you can do. So like you might do um, writing a technology or writing in the arts or writing in organizational cultures. And I've always taught writing in tech. And so like bringing big data into a research writing classroom made a lot of sense and talking about how algorithms sort, how you do research and how much you're like a middleman for different things and what you have exposure to. But I'm doing a section on writing in the arts right now and we're looking at popular culture and the way that circulates. Uh, so strangely, I'm actually doing a webinar this Friday for Haystack which will have some examples of this, but like it doesn't form my pedagogy or a lot or a lot of the, the illustrative examples I give. Uh, so for instance, I look a lot at like the circulation of information. And so when I have students kind of think about popular figures, so Cardi B, for instance, has had uh, a lot of Twitter exposure, I think, especially with politicians. Sure. And that's really weird because she's always like, uh, there was one tweet she had in January, I think of this year, she's like, why am I trending? And so a lot of politicians hopped on and they were referring back to a joke with Bernie Sanders, but they didn't really answer the question of like why she's actually trending. And for a lot of students, when they're doing research, they don't think about like what decisions the algorithm's making or, or how something actually trends on Twitter. So I have them actually, we actually pieced through that, like, you know, Twitter is about getting um, interactions. So when something's seen as popular, it doesn't mean it's the most relevant always. It just means it's the thing that has spurred the most activity on the platform. So like, while that might sometimes align with what's relevant or what people are talking about, the algorithm doesn't know that. It just knows like this spurs a lot of activity. So I'm going to push more of that. So getting students to think about like how like bots, how algorithms are shaping like what's trending, but it doesn't always line up the same way they think. And sometimes it leads to the information that's not actually relevant or good. I also think about the ways that people use Facebook as, and that's kind of what my um, rhetoric review article is about, is mm -hmm. the way people use Facebook as, as this way to come to know things, to like form their political opinions, to connect with others they think um actually share their views but then you find out uh and the, the example i use in that um article is something that happened during a 2016 election where you had two groups of people protesting and counter protesting but that whole like exigence was manufactured by like russian like trolls and disinformation people uh right. so, you have, so you have people in groups who are like sincerely interacting with each other and like they think everyone's on the same page, but then you find out that both groups are run by Russian operatives and it kind of throws up, well, how are we connecting with each other when like this could happen? Like, what does that mean? What is a platform disrupting? And so I, a lot of my students use social media and kind of thinking about why is the information they're seeing coming up? Are they vetting it? Uh, I think that's something I talk about in all of my classes is how do you vet the information you get? And a lot of the shortcuts we use, which it might be like, oh, I'll Google it. And if I see it on three different sites, it's probably true. Well, that doesn't really hold up when like right. uh, a lot of times people are pulling headlines from a trending Twitter post. Like, so like just seeing how that media ecosystem works. So I, I always try to build that in where they're looking at what sources they have. And one way I do that is I try to 
when they're doing a research project, so like right now my students are working on a review of a popular culture item of their choosing. A lot of them are doing music. Uh, and so I have them have their opinion in there, but I also want them to pull in some context. And so they need academic sources, like peer-reviewed academic sources to kind of contextualize some historical or social historical like context with that. But the other end is that I also have them pull popular sources. So like pull sources that are like explainers, pull interviews with the artists about their music themselves and like have these things interact with each other. And a lot of times we end up discussing like the importance of a popular source or a source that's not academic is sometimes it's just easier to understand or contextualize things differently. And you can use those to complement academic research. But if you base all of your research just on like sources that aren't vetted, you end up getting a lot of contradictory stuff or it's really hard to vet. So we talk a lot about like what makes something credible what are the uses for these things? But then also like what makes information accessible? Like, are you writing for an academic audience? Well, that's not really going to work for if you're writing, if you're trying to construct a research project for and not a, a more of a lay audience, like if you just throw a bunch of academic sources in there and just use that same language, you're not really helping make it more accessible. So like talking about those things with it too. That's a lot. I know that kind of got stuck down a rabbit hole, but that's okay. I love talking about pedagogy, uh, especially when it comes to bringing in things like social media and conversations concerning big data and surveillance. I wonder, what are some of your ethical approaches to bringing social media into the classroom? And, and that's the, the tough thing for me is the more, more there's one, there's been a lot of like really good journalism coming out about the very material and human effects of us even having these platforms. Like there's a lot of promise of AI eventually being able to vet all this for us. I'm not going to debate whether or not that's overblown. I think if okay. it's going to happen, it's going to happen down the road. But right now there's this promise of big data or there's big data and algorithms will fix our content curation. But right now we have humans like people whose job it is to watch the worst stuff on the internet to filter it out for us. And so it's not even just about like the data collection of students and trying to like balance that and making sure they're informed and not like necessarily requiring them to use Twitter uh, in order to do an assignment. Uh, but it's also thinking about like and using these platforms, there are other people who are being harmed in some ways because it's their job to watch harmful stuff for us, basically. Right. So we don't have to. Uh, so what I try to do is um, – and this was easier or more, more direct when I was teaching like um, research writing with like writing a technology as a theme. I have them look at and try to trace back where their tech comes from. Um, and so you can get really nuts with it when you look at like something like a cell phone and the minerals that are used. Um, when you think about like where those things came from and like what conditions those miners have and the way markets work, like there's a lot of opportunity to really explore like these larger ecologies and infrastructures. But um, so there's, there's one end you could do is you could look at like the material cost of these things. The other thing with like data is tough because a lot of my students, at least this semester, use like Instagram and Snapchat. I don't require them to, but I give them a space to. So I've tried to pick out things. I'm much more focused on um, them sharing content and like curating it. So I use things like uh, there's a service called Wakelet, which is just about saving links and you can make newsletters. So I have all my students like share links they would have on whatever social media they use. Um, but I don't require them to use it. Uh, I don't, I try to make sure we are actually looking at those issues. And I found that like, even after discussing the implications of it, a lot of students are still like, yeah, but what are you going to do? Like Facebook's what I use for info. Um, so I don't know how much I get through to them with that or requiring it to, but I, I've, I've since kind of moved away from requiring 
social media has like re- like you must use social media in this class. I've tried to direct them towards other platforms that are maybe are a little less uh, exploitive. Um, so like I post my videos on Vimeo. I try to stay away from YouTube, but that's just because I study YouTube a lot and I see a lot of the nasty stuff that kind of goes on there. And I'm trying to distance myself from that a little bit. Um, but on the other end, like I don't use social media right now because I've learned more and more about some of the material costs, but it's not to say that we should like shy away from the things. Like I still study it. I just don't engage right now because it's, I, I study it all day and I just need to stay away from it. I, I need to like unplug from it in order to not like drive myself crazy. Well, what are some of your methods of relaxation or distancing that you, that you practice to, to get away from it? Yeah. So, I mean, I've kind of turned back to music recently. Um, and I, I think more so with, this social distancing we're kind of living in in this moment um so like rather than just having music on in the background and working through it which is what i used to do i try to pick like soundtracks um i think the soundtracks to movies like gone girl and the social network uh so like trent Reznor's work with that like those movie scores are say, good. you must sound like a big nine inch nails fan <laughs> i i am i am and i, I didn't used to be but like his movie scores are really good background music. They're uh, amazing. They really yeah. are. And some of the roommates I had in the past have not appreciated that. So I've tried to keep it with the headphones, but yeah, I like ambient music and it's not just nine channels. Like I like, I think movie scores work well for like doing work. Cause I'm not focusing on the words, but what I found myself doing now is I will try to take some time in a day to just have like the headphones on and listen to a CD all the way through and not be on anything else to just listen. And it's, I try just like doing nothing and that doesn't work. But if I sit and listen to something and do nothing else, it kind of gives me a chance to recharge a little bit. So that's one way I kind of unplug in and recharge. I also try to do some of the mindfulness. I, I've, I've been a meditator for a couple of years. Um, mm. So I try to meditate each morning just to kind of check in. Um, but it's also just, trying to spend time i mean i like popular culture a lot so it's been an excuse to watch a lot of shows because i bring it into my classes so i've been keeping up with some shows even though they make me think of my research a little bit like westworld's one where like i can't not oh, yeah. see the surveillance and data and like reconstructing people and uh but yeah so i would say a lot of it's like listening to music's become a bigger thing um i try to make sure i at least walk or run regularly just to kind of keep healthy with that uh, but that's all i can really do especially right now because um, i'm kind of bound to my house but yeah i'm just trying to keep a routine that has these breakpoints built in uh, what about you charles like how do you oh how do you stay sane with it all oh well i you know the way i stay sane is that i'm lucky to have a partner who works hard and lifts me up in a lot of different ways so i, I guess i could start there but also i've started re-watching westworld recently and watching some other shows and and music what i thought was so fascinating noah about your answer and what drew me so close to you is that when you were talking about the the music that you listened to you said you sit down and you listen to a cd all the way through you didn't say album or record <laughs> so it, it, it made me like go back to my childhood and like my like portable cd player and things like that i was just living in the moment there for a second yeah yeah cds i have mostly cds and like i started to collect some vinyls because some artists are kind of going yeah. they'll give you like a loss list but i don't own a record player yet so i'm working on it but i mostly listen to cds but there's something about listening to something all the way through and not breaking it up so like when i was listening to spotify and spotify is interesting like what they're collecting and how they're shaping music because mm-hmm. there's an article I could send you. It's like it's a popular article, but it's from um, 
oh, I forget what the publication is, but they're like a, you know, just kind of like a cultural magazine, but it's called Stream Bait Pop. So what, what Spotify has found is that what tends to get played a lot is music that you can kind of like not pay attention to. Right. And so they're, they're, they're artists who are like identifying, it's kind of like you put the chorus in, there's like a formula to it. Like you put the chorus in repetitively, you make sure you get to that chorus right away and you have like music that's not too high, not too low. It's like a sweet spot, but it's just kind of like a drawl, but that's what's getting popular on Spotify. And that's what it's, people are choosing to listen to. So the algorithm's like reinforcing that. So it's actually shaping like up and coming artists are trying to make music that'll circulate on Spotify in these really weird ways. And so like you think of like an album where someone made 12 tracks that are meant to be listened to in order and like when you do that and you kind of work through like the movements they're making, which reminds me a lot of like the writing process, um, right. like moving from track to track and having that fit together. And not our, all artists have to do that. Um, some make it very single driven, but with like Spotify, it's changing like what music gets made because it's like, well, I got to do this to make sure I circulate on here. And then maybe later I'll get to do like this album that's more conceptual. Um, so I guess I have a, a newfound appreciation for um, concept albums in a way that I haven't since like 10 years ago when I first started listening to certain bands. But I, I think I appreciate artists who try to put together something that fits in 12 tracks rather than like three. Um, yeah. It sounds like you have just discovered your next article, right? About ethos building. And yeah. Spotify. Well, there's, there's that with Spotify. I also think of Uber though. Uh, yeah. So like, I think with this dissertation too is I kind of look at ethos as the way we build connections with other things, people, histories, and technology is like a big part of that, like our connection technology and how we think through with technology. Uh, and so if we kind of think of that, like almost like ontological connection making, we're kind of offloading that to algorithms because it seems neutral and easier, but they were having like really weird things happen where like, we're getting connected with communities that maybe are like super toxic or they're getting more amplification. But then I think of something like Uber and it's like changing the relationship between riders and drivers and even like our public transportation. So what does it mean when like a driver is really almost like a bot that's not meant to be like treated as a human. They're just there to pick you up and go somewhere. And like that whole transaction is like you rate each other after you leave you know, you might have someone that's personable, but if someone's rating drops below, I don't remember what the scale is. Was it like a four or a five? But like, if you don't have a really high rating, you get less fares. So like, there's so much pressure to be high performing and it like kind of dissolves that relationship between us and like the infrastructures we rely on. And that's algorithmic too. Like they're being used to generate, you know, data and profit and it, it kind of weakens some of these connections we had before. What's your favorite horror movie? Oh man, how'd you know I love horror? Uh, <laughs> You included it in your I bio know, that you know, sent me. I just mess with you. So that's tough because like I've always been a fan of like David Fincher, and so I really like the movie Seven. I like that one a lot. Uh, so I think when I, I there's a difference between my favorite film and the one I think it's best made. Yes, agree uh, with you there. A favorite is something I can. It's not that I want to watch it all the time, but it's like whenever I do, I can watch it all the way through and like enjoy it. And I'll revisit it. So I think of like films like John Carpenter's The Thing. Like I, I watched that probably once a year just because I really like the way the tension builds and guessing where the alien is. But I think one of my favorites right now is actually Get Out. I've been like kind of looking at that and thinking of doing a class about like the, the rhetorics of horror, but looking yeah. more or more at like white um like the concept of whiteness through horror and how that's reinforced of those different things. So looking at um 
Wes Craven's work with like the people under the stairs, um, looking at like Candyman, looking at Get Out. So like looking at these films that have these discourses in there and if that's a way for us to kind of look at our history. And what I like about horror is that it it reflects some of our anxieties or reflects some of like these things that we're worried about or thinking about and like in this horrific way, but there's like a catharsis with that. So yeah, I'd say right now my top three uh, it's got to be like the thing. It's got to be uh, seven. And I would say Get Out is up there. Uh, I really, really like what Jordan Peterson did. And I wasn't like a huge fan of the stuff he did before. Like with Key and Peele, there'd be sometimes it'd be a sketch I liked. But I really like what he's doing with like horror right now. Like I think he's really kind of doing something different and making space for other directors to come in and to tell their stories. Agreed. I will take those recommendations highly. And I watched The Thing last year. But I might need to give Candyman another watch. Noah, yeah. what else do we need to talk about before I let you off here? I don't know. I feel like we talked about a lot of things. Dude, I feel like we covered a lot. What are you teaching right now? Yeah, so right now I'm teaching the research writing course. So uh, writing in the arts, we're focusing on popular culture. And so I have a lot of students who are doing like music and film with that. And then last, sem- uh, last semester I got to teach digital writing for the first time, upper division course here at Syracuse it was mm. something all the majors take and I really like that because I got to bring in some of the um, the algorithmic stuff that I have been working on and I try to think of like really strange lessons that are actually not digital to illustrate terms so like I was thinking about like how do you teach someone about algorithms and like how they make decisions uh, and so I had one like activity where I had I got this from a documentary about algorithms actually from the BBC but you have like a bunch of candies in a jar and you have students take turns drawing one two or three against you uh, and if you're the last person to draw a candy, then you have to eat like a pepper. I don't make them eat the pepper, but I will always win this because I'm using an algorithm to do that. And so it's always amazing that I tell them this, that like, I will always win this. And they're still like, no, I can figure it out. Let me go like two or three more times. I could do this. And then when I explain to them the trick, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You're just doing math. Guys. Awesome. Yeah. So things like that, like trying to, to pull in like non-digital ways to explain digital things. Uh, I, I like doing that in 302. I don't know I'm going to be teaching in the fall. Uh, I've taught professional writing, so I'm open to teaching that again. There's one of my favorite lessons in the technical writing, technical professional writing class we have here is there's an instructions assignment where they have to, students have to make instructions and there's a lot of latitude for that. So I let them do instructions for anything. And a lot of them yeah. ended up choosing food, but the best project I got from a student, um, like they had to make a website where they do like images and text for it. But the best project was actually a student who gave instructions on how to change toilet paper. She did such a fantastic job, like breaking down the steps. She had like, oh, wow. it was very tongue in cheek, but like very, very professionally made. And that was like the best project I saw. So having students giving them space to kind of you know, be very serious with their project, but to do it about something they're interested in and that even if they feel it's a little goofy, but they, they get invested in it. Like that's the kind of stuff I like to do. Well, the toilet paper project is probably quite, <laughs> pr- quite chirotic as we are in the middle of a global. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should pass her instructions along. I mean, she did it last <laughs> year. But, uh, I wonder if she has <laughs> used those. For sure. Noah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, I hope you have a great afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm sorry we couldn't catch up at, you know, computers and writing this year, oh. but there's always next year, right? Yeah. I know, right? Hopefully so. And I'll keep my eyes peeled, but uh, hopefully maybe, perhaps there'll be a, another collaboration with us in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I greatly like that.
you enjoy my conversation with Noah Wilson. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Rhett and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. And you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.